Welcome. You're listening to the Everlasting Business Podcast. I am your co-host, Greg Schoenberg, a leadership coach and financial executive with years of experience under my belt. And I'm Ari Mizell, a productivity coach passionate about optimizing work and life. Together, we're here to delve deep into the timeless principles that fortify businesses for the long haul. Each week, we take you on a thought-provoking journey. We explore the secrets behind the centuries-long success of iconic brands to the innovative strategies driving the business of the future. From understanding the power of stress inoculation and incentives to unmasking the challenges of the present day business world, we're here to provide valuable insights and practical tips. So whether you're an entrepreneur just starting out or an established executive, our conversations aim to inspire, educate, and lay the foundations for a prosperous future in business. So buckle up and join us on this exciting journey. And let's together uncover the lessons that make businesses truly everlasting. All right, we are back and are going to do an episode on prompting. And when I say we, I'm Greg Schoenberg. And I'm Ari Mizell. See, I prompted you for that by saying my name first. Yes, you did. And then you did it. So... Ari, you have been thinking a lot about prompting lately in a number of different contexts. Um, I'm going to prompt you. What is a context where prompting has arisen quite a bit in your work these days? Well, notwithstanding all the AI stuff, obviously, because we're going to, that's sort of, uh, that's par for the course, I guess, at this point. In my work as a coach, I think prompting has been something that I've been experiencing all along uh, as a way of pulling out the really good content in a way. Um, and so I, to me, this whole AI revolution thing and the prompting is like, it, it, it fits so well in the way I kind of operate and think. And I feel like not just me as a coach, this is not a, this is not a, uh, a summation of how I coach or, or what I think of my coaching. But if you think of, well, okay, actually, so let me make a quick differentiation for people. The way I see the difference between co- coaching and consulting, because that's often a point of confusion, and I've done both. The way I see it is that coaching is you, the client, brings your content to me. And I, having been prompted, and I never said it that way before, but having been prompted, I advise you, I respond, I uh, reimagine what you're saying in a way that can get you where you want to go. Whereas consulting is I bring my content, my structure, my methodology to you and help you implement it. And then you go off and do that. And I see that as a sort of a differentiator. Now, what I was going to say before is the way I see coaching a lot of times with the way I do it. And this is, again, this is not a comment on my quality of coaching. It's just the way that I do with the coaching is it's like a museum with thousands and thousands of pieces of art and sculpture and antiquities and whatnot. And the coaching clients are taking a trip through that museum and it is up to them to walk up to a piece of art, look at it and have a reaction to it, have an emotional response, have thoughts and hate it if they want, whatever it is. It's not up to the sculpture to get down off the pedestal and come over and grab them by the hand and say, this is what you need to do. Mm. And so the way for, because my coaching is over Voxer, as you know, and I don't. I have a very, very small amount of structure to it at the very beginning, but essentially, it's an all-you-can-eat RE buffet, <laughs> and they come to me with whatever they want, whenever they want. They get unlimited access to me. The better the question that they ask, the better the question I can ask, and the better I can offer them. But it's up to them to engage in that way. 
Same thing as with the artwork. That's how I see it. Yeah. So it's fascinating for me now with what's been going on with ChatGPT and how prompting has become such a word du jour in many ways that to think of it that way because I feel like the clients that prompt me the best are the ones that I find the most interesting to work with. So it's not a matter of like, oh, are they asking annoying questions? Are they talking too much? No, it's like, are they asking me things that make me think? Hmm. And if the answer is yes, that's a good relationship. Absolutely. And I would, and I would do that for free any day of the week because right. that is how I produce my best content. You know, it's so interesting too because you, you know, I mean, nobody else knows this, but you, of course, know this. You helped me on my coaching path. And one of the ways in which you have done that um, amongst the many is coming up with the tagline that I use, which is provoking transformation. And the word provoke is something that I really enjoy doing. And I would argue that maybe it's a form of prompting. But my own experience has been when you talk with smart accomplished people that have a good sense of themselves, that have well-honed beliefs, that are very good at articulating, you know, why they believe what they do. It's sometimes hard to penetrate them and to get them to think differently and be open-minded because even if they're not outwardly uh, arrogant or you know, even if they're not arrogantly confident, let's say, there is a difficulty in getting super smart people to change their mind and open up. And I have found in my coaching that provoking them in a way that lets their guard down is often a wonderful way over time to unleash new perspectives. So as an example... One thing I did with a client recently, I said, this is a CEO of a company, I said, write your dismissal letter. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you got fired. And write a letter explaining why, to the board, why you got fired, what you did wrong, and why the, you know, the company had no choice but to let you go. And and this was a very difficult exercise for somebody, but it helped them see where they perceive that they have a weakness and their vulnerability. But had it not been for, if I had just asked them, where do you have a weakness? And, you know, what is your downfall potentially as a professional? They might not have been able to come up with an answer, but upon giving them an assignment that, said, you have no other choice. The, the assignment is a dismissal letter. They thought deeply about it, and I think they made some progress from that. So that is a form of prompting, but it, it is a particular form that I find especially interesting to do, really provoking people to go where most people would prefer not to go, which is to think about your weakness, think about where you might make a mistake, because in this one area, you don't have good judgment and deep down you know it. Ooh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> that's very good. I like the way you just sort of drove that home, gave me chills. Thank you. I worked uh, on that all morning. <laughs> <laughs> Did I have I ever told you about the Dean Jackson bake the cookies thing? 
No, tell me. Okay, so Dean Jackson is a marketing genius who's still around, still doing what he does. He's I met him, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Brilliant, brilliant guy. But he always says you have to bake the cookies. And what he means by that, this is in terms of marketing, but if you invite somebody over to your house, come in the living room, they sit down on the couch and you say, hey, I'm just going to, I just have to go to the restroom. Uh, go ahead in the kitchen and take anything you want, you know, have a drink, food, whatever you want, and I'll be right back. Most people will not get up and go to the kitchen and do that, and rummage around and do that. Right. He said, if you come out of the kitchen with a tray of freshly baked cookies and you put them in their face, no one will say no. Right. Right. So you have to, and this is what he says with marketing, right? So you can't just be like, here's a great piece of content. Like, all right, I'll be back. It always, it's like, here's like this thing. This is why you need it. Hit this button and you're going to change your life. Like you have to right. make it stupidly easy that they can't say no. Bake the cookies, right? That's a prompt. That's a prompt. And we have to think about this. I, I love that this is, again, the, the sort of like, mod, like current vernacular in terms of the way that we have to think about this is that you can't be passive with a lot of this stuff and you have to be proactive and think about what is the next thing to do the next thing and not like in terms of chasing, you know, some far off number or some dream, but it's like you have to constantly be looking at what is the, how can I poke the bear in a way, right, to get some sort of a response because any response is often better than no response. I mean, no response is a death knell, right? Right. Which which speaks to why I think, and it's certainly not the case, that every successful business out there is addressing a problem that people have, right? I mean, you know, there are many examples of companies that have created great products where a demand was created for that product. People didn't even know they needed it until a company came along and said, you need this widget. But that being said, I think a majority of successful products and services are addressing problems that people have because it is easier upon being prompted to say, yes, I want that. That is a issue that I have that I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to part with some of the money in my wallet and give it to you to make this problem go away. Right. And, and you know, if you think about even podcasts, interviews, uh, and Tim Ferriss, I think, actually said this a while ago, which was about how his goal was just to get better at asking better questions. Right. The better the question, the better the response in some ways. Ask a stupid question, get a stupid answer. Hopefully the opposite is, is also true. Uh, and this is no different than when we're looking at ChatGPT. So let's bring it back to that for a second. I've been I've seen this a lot now with people who have had a um, unsatisfying experience with ChatGPT. They'll tell me like, oh, I tried it, you know, I didn't really like what I got from it. And it's because a lot of times they try it once. They try asking one thing, they don't get that what they want, and then they're like, all right, it didn't work. Uh, but if you keep noodling and you keep responding and you actually treat it like something that you can fine-tune... And so far to the point where you can say, how can I make my prompt, you can ask ChatGPT, how can I make my prompt better so that I get this result next time? Now, how can I improve that so that I get an even better result? You can ask ChatGPT, what should I be putting into my prompt so that I get this when you tell it what the result is? And it will help you do that. Um, and I've done this on a number of occasions now. So the idea of like, here's, you know, here's one try, I don't get what I want, move away. I think that we see that in a lot of aspects of life. We certainly see that in business. I, I think this is a, a case in point of skew morphism in action. 
What would you say to that? I'd say that I still don't quite get what skeuomorphism is, and I was hoping that you would explain it to me. <laughs> it's essentially a digital design concept where the digital form factor is made to resemble a real-world counterpart because that will be make it more familiar. There is no reason why the, the calculator app on your phone has to like look a like a calculator. Oh, that's now, a good example. Yeah, I mean, and it makes sense. It's because, oh, well, it, this is somewhat familiar from the digital world because, after all, I had a calculator, so I'm going to use this particular app. Here's where I think it applies to ChatGPT. Right now, I think there is a skeuomorphic dynamic where ChatGPT kind of has a Google feel to it, right? You put in your question, you hit go, and you get an answer. And that is familiar to people. And so they treat ChatGPT, many people do, like Google. Input something, and then you get the output. If you change that, however, and you said, rather than have an open field that looks Google-esque, if you change that and you said prompt one, prompt two, prompt three, prompt four, and people just knew automatically to put in those prompts, right? I wonder how that would change the experience of how people approach using ChatGPT because it's really all in the prompting, right? It's not like I'm going to come up with something that is so brilliant that I have ChatGPT do that nobody else has thought of. It's the combination of prompts you put in and the degree to which you can be specific about those prompts to get the output that you want. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a very good point uh, in terms of, I guess, the skeuomorphism aspect of it. Do you remember uh, Vol- wait, Voltan? Why do I know that? From name? Big? From Big, yes, yes, yeah, of I course. I think it was Voltan, right? Yeah, something right. Like you put in a quarter, you get the fortune, and right. you walk away. Right. Right. That's how a lot of in people... In the Jersey, uh, Fort Lee Cliffs. Exactly. Right. right, yeah. But I think that's how a lot of people do this, right? It's right. like you put in the prompt, you get what you get, and then you're, you're done. Uh, but that's not what this is. This is, if anything, I, I look. So, ChatGPT is one of my startup pages on Chrome. If I open up Chrome, it's like my email and calendar stuff, and ChatGPT is one of them now. That's always open because I use it every single day. One, it's a muscle, it's a skill. I think that we can keep getting better at. But two, I just happen to be using it so much now that it's just it's just become commonplace. Uh, but you would never, like you and I, when we were planning this podcast initially, like we never would have booked a meeting together to brainstorm the podcast and showed up, sat down and been like, here's one idea. And you'd say, yeah, I don't like it. And I'm like, all right, see you next week. Right? We wouldn't do that. Right. So I think that's the problem. People are treating it like Volton. They're not treating it like a partner in this journey or a sidekick. They're treating it like Google. Yes, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And and Googling ChatGPT or treating it like Google means you're ultimately going to get disappointed and stop using it because it is not a Google replacement. Correct. Right. Now, on that note, one of the things I keep telling people and I keep telling clients this and stuff is that you really should look at ChatGPT as a way of saving time. And uh, whether that's, you know, writing things faster or coming up with ideas faster or, you know, iterating things faster, it's a way of saving time. What is an issue which has always been an issue and it's one of the big things that i taught for the longest time is that people are not aware at a granular level of what is going on in their processes so the example that i always used to give of this was uh 
and you can answer me, is what do you think, if you had to guess, is the average number of steps required to pay a bill? Ooh, great question. I am going to guess four. Great guess. The answer is 23. Oh my gosh, that is a terrible <laughs> guess. No, it's a great guess because <laughs> if you were to tell me, and I was your assistant, you'd be like, Ari, I need you to pay this bill. Right. I'd be like, all right, Greg, how do I do it? You would probably tell me four steps if I asked you. You'd say, uh, go, you know, log into the banking website, go to the pay bill thing, and you know, pay this. Three right. steps, maybe. That's, it's actually 23 steps because if you think about it, right, you got to log in, fine. If the payee is already there, cool, you have to select them. If it's not there, you have to add them, and this is how you do it. I want it to be paid from this account. I want it to be paid on this day. I want, you know, what do I do with the bill once it's done? Is it digital? I have to file it somewhere. Is it physical? Do I have to scan it and put it somewhere? It gets to 23 very, very quickly. But you think there's four. And you're not wrong because that's how it is for you. Because we have, we have heuristics in our brain that are these shortcuts that we just do things because we've always done them that way and you don't need to explain it. So because of that, we are really, really shitty at writing processes and explaining things to people. Mm, yeah. And it just creates processes that people never use. The way that I teach people to create processes is reverse it. So most people, the way they'll teach it, the way they'll document a process is they will uh, they'll write it down and they'll give it to somebody else. Like, Here's a process, go do it. And it, it, it more often than not does not work. The way that I teach it is the opposite. You show somebody how to do the process and you can do it with a screencast of a digital or if it's a manufacturing process, you can do it physically. And you tell that person, you write the process from what you see. You write the checklist. Then we take that checklist and ideally if we have the resources, we give it to another person who hasn't seen it before and we ask them to run through that checklist. 100% of the time it will fail. But why it's so great is because that person now, they're going to get to step three and step three says, uh, open the payroll document for November. And they now have to say to you, well, where is it? And you're like, oh, right, I have to put a link or something. So instead of saying open the payroll document, it should say, click this link to open the document for this month. They get down to step 15 and it says, click the big red button when you're done. And they say, I don't have a big red button. And you say, right, because I'm an admin, you're a guest, we have to change the permissions and fix that in the process. And then we get all the way down to the very end and it says, when you're done, give this document to Roger in accounting. And you're like, I just started here yesterday. Who's Roger? Oh, uh, Roger quit six months ago. He's not here anyway. So that's not, you know. Right. So we have to say, give it to this person or not even a person, a role. You want to make somebody irreplaceable in your business? Name them in a process. <laughs> <laughs> Roles have to be uh, relative. So a position and assets like a document or something have to be absolute, like a link to it, whatever it is. So um, all that to say, right, that you thought there were four steps. There's really 23. Um, and so if you don't know the steps in your process, it's very, very hard to know what to fix, what to look for, and where you can save time. So really concrete example of this, I now run social media for a couple different organizations here that are nonprofits. Uh, it's sort of my way of getting involved in these organizations. And social media is not something that I would consider to be a skill set of mine. But because ChatGPT is my co-pilot now, <laughs> I can say yes, because ChatGPT can help me come up with the things, the, the whole plan. It can help me come up with the posts. It can help suggest images. I can use MidJourney to create the images and all that stuff. And it's actually a really fun sort of creative outlet for me, which I'm really enjoying. In addition, though, I've created an automation so that I can post this stuff to the various accounts for these different people in a very slick and automated way, which I do through Trello. 
there's a very important step in that process. So ChatGPT will write a post for Instagram or LinkedIn or whatever it is. And then when we post it on Instagram or LinkedIn, we also want to post it to Twitter just to spread the word. It might seem pretty obvious and basic, but a 750-word post on LinkedIn, a tweet does not make. <laughs> so now I have a part of the process where it automatically takes that back to ChatGPT, even though ChatGPT wrote the post in the first place. And it says, make a tweet from this. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, exactly, right? And then it comes back, and then it writes... It, and then Make the, a tweet from a 750-word LinkedIn post yeah, into something that 280 characters. Into 280 characters. Mm -hmm. Wow. On the fly. But that's also important because we need to create the post on LinkedIn or whatever first so that we then have a link from LinkedIn for the post to put in the tweet. To put in the tweet. <laughs> right. Now, if I just said, like... Hey, make a social media cast, posting process. Even me, who's been through this a lot of times, it's like, yeah, we just post it on LinkedIn and then have it shared on Twitter. But that would miss the steps, and it would be obvious that it was a machine, and it would not do the job that it's supposed to do. Right. So we need to be able to break down these processes that we do in order to see all these opportunities for saving time. To a level of specificity and to a, um, a degree of, I don't want to say nitpickiness, but... So many people have processes that, you know, there is context associated with them that they know that other people coming in off the street may not know, right? Like my way of saying what you've just described is explain this to me in caveman terms, right? Like mm -hmm. make it so simple and stupid that I couldn't even possibly mess it up as long as I know how to read. Um, that may work to some extent, but I think your way is even better in that it really forces you to get down to that granular level, which is so critical because Richard in accounting will leave, right? We know he will leave. Guaranteed. And um, as such, it is really a great point. And to, to the sort of broader point of prompting, you know, as you said, it is a muscle, it is a skill. And the better, the more you practice it and the more you see the outcomes that you get for when you do a particular prompt, the better you become. I mean, we should absolutely do an episode at some point about prompting because I do think that it's a skill and I think prompting engineers are going to be an in-demand role in the years to come. Regardless of whether or not you have a fancy degree from a college or not, you could be an effective prompter. There'll probably be books about prompting your way to fame and fortune. Yeah, so the um, 100%. And so the last thing that I'll just say about it is that when you do a process in the way that I just described, you've now shown that it works not only at a secondary level, but a tertiary level. You could literally take somebody off the street, and now we're talking about eliminating training. Because I would make the argument, we can talk about this in another episode, that most training in companies is actually there to compensate for bad process. Hmm. And I'll just leave you with this. There's a, a quote that I think is really well, fits this really well. I don't know who said it, but basically it was some athlete, and they said, uh, amateurs do it until they get it right. Professionals do it until they can't get it wrong. Ah, love that. On that uplifting note, thank you so much, sir.